Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. Ron, we've just concluded our series on the accounts of creation and the fall in Genesis 1 to 3. As we were talking specifically about the fall, you mentioned the episode in the Gospels where Satan tempts Jesus. Yes. And you suggested that might be considered a rerun of the fall. Well, we spent a little bit of time with that there. In Genesis 3, the woman is tempted by a serpent. Mm -hmm. It never says that the serpent is Satan or the devil. Right. Those associations came later, but we did flesh out that vocabulary a little bit. Other Old Testament literature has this figure of an accuser called the Satan in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. He pops up on a few occasions in the Old Testament, and most people remember specifically where he shows up in the story of Job. Yeah, and when that figure got represented by Jewish writers in Greek, they reached for the word diabolos, a slanderer or accuser. It was this same enigmatic figure, though, in various degrees, accuser, tempter, deceiver, adversary. Uh, By the way, it was the Greek diabolos that gives us our word devil. In any case, this episode is fantastic fodder for many a sermon. (laughs) It may be one of the few places where homiletic flights of fancy are relatively forgivable. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And frankly, it's just a fun episode to treat in the Gospels. When you and I first started talking about this, you mentioned that this episode scratches many academic itches. Yes. (laughs) This is a bit of an odd beast as the stories in the Gospels go. And I have to admit, there's a lot here that I find fascinating, especially the connections back to the Pentateuch. And I think we agreed we're not going to chase all the things scholars like to argue about here. I was surprised at how quickly this series got much longer than I expected, though. (laughs) Listeners can take comfort knowing that we could have said more. (laughs) It could have been even longer. Even longer. Well, this conversation gives us the chance to talk about some important things that are relevant to reading the Gospels. Each Gospel writer, each evangelist tells their story in slightly different ways. The impulse among lay readers is often to gloss over those differences, but we'll address a little bit of how scholars scrutinize those differences to ferret out the specific concerns of the evangelist. Of course, this is also a fantastic example of New Testament authors making reference to Scripture. And here, Scripture means the Old Testament, of course. (laughs) Of course it does. (laughs) Anyone who knows this knows how important that is. The documents of the New Testament make no sense without the old. And this episode where Jesus is tempted by Satan is one place where those connections are just blazingly obvious. Well, let's plunge in and see what this is all about. The story of the temptation of Jesus comes out of what we call the synoptic tradition. That's to say we find references to it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it's not obviously present in the Gospel of John. And most of our listeners will know that the Gospel of John, while it tells basically the same story as the other Gospels, it tells it in a very different way. However, it turns out that Mark only mentions this episode of Satan tempting Jesus and does it in passing. The full story, if you will, is only present in Matthew and Luke. So we thought we'd start with Mark. What are the broad outlines of this episode? Then we'll dive into Matthew and Luke. Mark gives us this story in two short verses. It comes right after Mark narrates the baptism of Jesus. In the first chapter, verses 12 and 13, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. 
let's break that down a piece at a time. What have we got? Well, first we've got the context. Again, this episode begins immediately after Jesus' baptism. Mm. At the baptism, we had that public acknowledgement that Jesus had a special ministry in front of him. But as soon as that's over, Jesus is sent or even driven by the Spirit. The place he is driven to is out into the wilderness. There he fasts 40 days and 40 nights, an ancient way of saying for a long period of time. And he is tempted by Satan. Yeah, that's really curious there. Mark essentially transliterates the Hebrew into Greek. If you're sounding out the phrase by Satan in Mark's gospel, it reads, hupo to satana. In other words, Mark did not reach for the Greek diabolos as some other authors do. Interesting. Well, in any case, we've got a clear appearance by that shadowy figure we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And at the end of this period of fasting and testing, Mark tells us that Jesus is ministered to by angels. John, it's a characteristic of the Gospel of Mark. You might say it's a, a mark of Mark <laughs> that, he, <laughs> that he is brief. His narrative style is terse and unadorned. At first, this strikes some readers as unsophisticated. Luke, in contrast, has a far better command of Greek and comes across as an educated Greek speaker. Mark, not so much. After you spend some time with Mark, though, you begin to wonder. There is nuance and perhaps even genius in Mark's laconic style. It's quite possible Mark chose very carefully what he did not say. Well, it falls to Matthew and Luke then to give us the rest of the story, as yes. you said, Ron. Only there do we get the details about Jesus' encounter with Satan. Some listeners will know that certain scholars insist this makes the temptation story a part of a mysterious document called Q. Q. Q is the <laughs> material that we find virtually identical in Matthew and Luke, but that isn't present in the other two Gospels. The problem is that Q is supposed to be mostly sayings of Jesus. So the Sermon on the Mount is a good example of material that's supposed to be in Q. The story of Jesus' temptation by the devil, though, is narrative. It shows up only in Matthew and Luke, but it doesn't fit the sayings material framework that's supposed to be Q. <laughs> no one gets through seminary, right. much less graduate biblical studies, <laughs> without encountering Q. Ron, I detect a significant level of doubt. Uh, perhaps I can even say disdain for this idea of Q. <laughs> I think we're on the same page about that. In the library at the University of Virginia, I could go pull a critical edition of Q off the shelf. It may not be immediately obvious to listeners how preposterous that is. A critical edition of something is an edition that lets me see the differences between existing copies of a document. There are absolutely no extant documents of something that looks like Q. It's completely a hypothetical document. In my mind, the value of Q lies only in identifying material Matthew and Luke share with each other and not with other Gospels. Well, even if Matthew and Luke share this story, they aren't, in fact, identical. Right. Perhaps the most significant change is that Luke reverses the order of the second and third temptations. There are other differences, but we'll talk about those later. Many scholars will say they think Matthew's version is close to the original story, whatever that means, and that Luke has a variant on that. In any case, why don't we start with Matthew's version of the story and go from there? Sure, but I also want to mention this. If you are concerned that Matthew and Luke tell different versions of this story, don't be. We'll come back and deal with that before the episode is over. Mm -hmm. 
All right, Ron, you've suggested we start with Matthew's version of the story. So let's do that. Matthew tells this story in chapter four of his gospel. The story opens in verses one and two with much of what we know from Mark. In fact, the only thing we lack in those two verses is the ministering angels. Mm. So let's run back through those details right quick. This episode begins immediately after Jesus' baptism. Jesus is led by the Spirit. Complete aside here, but Matthew's verb for what the Spirit's doing seems to be gentler than Mark's. Ah, Jesus is led rather than being driven, as Mark puts it? Exactly. Yes. Okay, well, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, led or driven by the Spirit. He fasts 40 days and 40 nights. He's tempted by the devil. Yes, Mark said Satan. Matthew and Luke go with the Greek word diabolos, devil. I'm not sure there's a particular significance to this other than the fact that it's one more example that ties the Hebrew Satan to the Greek diabolos and ultimately to our English word devil. Fair enough. But after that summary in the first two verses that closely approximate what we heard from Mark, then we get the new information. Now we actually get to hear the conversation between Jesus and the devil. The devil opens. Da, da, da. <laughs> Temptation number one comes in verses three and four. The setting is the conclusion of this long period of fasting. And the devil says, essentially, if you are the son of God, turn these rocks into bread. Jesus responds by quoting scripture. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. More about that in a minute. Believe me. <laughs> Now, Ron, we've just heard the significant title, Son of God. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time with that in another series, Ultimate Hope Has a Name. This is a messianic title, a title that's appropriate to a king of ancient Israel. Exactly. But I want to point out something else that's going on here in the gospel. At the baptism of Jesus, something Matthew has just narrated, something that is in the immediate context for this episode, God said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And here we have the devil directly challenging the plain words of God. If you really are the son of God. At this point, I can't help but hear the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? (laughs) Yes. At this point, there is a definite parallel to the story of the fall. Can we or can we not trust what God tells us? Well, the immediate temptation is that the devil wants Jesus to use his power to satisfy his own desires. Jesus responds by quoting, well, quoting something out of the Old Testament. (laughs) Ron, yes, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, specifically verse 3, which you know. (laughs) I I promised we were coming back to this, so let's spend a minute here. In Deuteronomy 8, the people are being called to follow God's commands. In those few verses, they're reminded that God took care of them in the wilderness. Remember, Mm -hmm. God provided them food, manna, and water, but it was a hard time for Israel. And the point was for them to learn specifically this truth. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The parallels here are remarkable. The people were in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days. The people were hungry. Jesus is fasting. In both cases, God provided. But the most important point is God's word is what matters. Well, and by the way, speaking of God's word, as you observed there, didn't God just say, this is my son? And the devil questioned the word of God. Jesus' response is, what God said, that's what I'm sticking with. Exactly. By the way, we're not done with this. We're coming back here in the next episode. (laughs) 
Now, temptation number two comes in verses five to seven, and the setting is the top of the temple somewhere. The the temple was the tallest structure in Jerusalem. So the pinnacle, which is the translation we see often, and not sure if that's the best translation, but the pinnacle of the temple would be the highest point in the city. And it would be in one of the busiest, most public parts of the city. If it refers to the edge or to an extremity, that is something up high in the temple that juts out, it could mean a corner of the temple platform, the temple mount, or something similar like that. Depending on which corner of the temple they were at, it was either a tremendously impressive fall or a very busy intersection for a very public display. The devil tells Jesus, if you are the son of God... There we have it again. If. Yes. The devil isn't giving up on that, is he? He's taking every opportunity to cast doubt on God's word. In any case, he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down because it is written. And then the devil quotes scripture. Well, the devil goes down to Georgia. I guess he can quote scripture too. (laughs) Specifically, (laughs) he quotes Psalm 91 where God commands the angels to protect those who take refuge in him. And Jesus responds, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, he's quoting Deuteronomy, this time chapter six. Well, the immediate temptation seems to be the devil wants Jesus to use his power to demonstrate who he is in relation to God by providing a miracle. Uh, You can hear the crowds as they'll later say to Jesus, show us a sign. The devil is trying to create an artificial need for God to act, as I understand it. Yeah, precisely. God's faithfulness should be a given. We don't test God to see if God will be faithful. Okay. The passage Jesus quotes here is specifically verse 16 in Deuteronomy 6. The context here is a very specific instance where the people of Israel put God to the test. It was a time where God had Moses strike the rock to provide water after the people grumbled about being thirsty. Well, in Israel's case, at least the need was real. They had a legitimate need for water. The way they expressed that need, though, I think betrayed their lack of confidence in God. True. To put God to the test here as the devil tempts Jesus, though, would probably have been even worse. This would have been a completely manufactured test of God's faithfulness. And again, we're going to come back to this in the next episode. More to say. The final, te- <laughs> yes, the final temptation, number three, comes in verses eight to ten. The setting now is a high mountain where the devil and Jesus survey all all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil says, I give you all this if you worship me. I notice the pretense, if you'll let me call it that, of if you're the son of God, that's gone. This now seems like a bald-faced power grab. I notice the devil is offering Jesus the chance to be a vassal, a bit like Herod to Caesar. Jesus gets power if he acknowledges the devil's authority. Yeah, the condition is something we translate as worship. In Greek, it's proskinesis. It carries the implication of kneeling or even prostrating oneself before another. The immediate temptation is to subvert God's intention. Give the devil a place he's not supposed to have. And incidentally, in the end, Jesus gets everything the devil offers him anyway. Uh, Jesus' response to the devil is, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now Jesus is quoting verse 13 out of Deuteronomy 6. We're at the heart of the story where God gives the law to Israel. And that comes with a requirement that the people will hand down God's commandments from one generation to the next. 
at the very center of that is the Shema, which Jews still recite daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. A few verses later, the verse that Jesus quotes reiterates this core foundation of the faith and its connection to the commandments. Divine honors are for God alone. Anything else abandons everything that Jesus is. Again, we're coming back to this in the next episode. We must. A lot more detail, yes. Ron, I think the verse Jesus quotes here was actually very important in your own PhD dissertation. It, It was, and I'm looking forward to the chance to talk a little bit more about that. Well, verse 11 concludes the story and the devil leaves. Now we get the one piece Matthew had been missing from Mark's version. The angels come to minister to Jesus. Notice this is just what the Psalms promised Mm. and what the devil quoted. (laughs) Right. The angels actually do minister to Jesus, but that doesn't happen as a result of some manipulation on Jesus or the devil's part. Luke tells essentially the same story, and in a curious twist of biblical history, he does it in exactly the same chapter as Matthew. We get Luke's version of this story at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, and for those who don't know, the chapters were assigned much later after scripture was written, but turns out Matthew deals with this in chapter 4, so does Luke. Luke does present a few variations, though. Perhaps most notably, Luke swaps the second and third temptation. The test where the devil presents the kingdoms of the world and asks Jesus to worship him, that comes before, that comes as the second temptation. And the episode at the temple where Jesus is supposed to throw himself down, that comes as the third temptation. Ron, why do you think Luke would do that? You know, we can only speculate. I know geography mattered to Luke. I noticed he chooses to conclude this story at a point where it has a specific setting in an important spot, Jerusalem. Uh, But there are other proposals, some of them a bit esoteric and academic. In any case, Luke also has the devil wax a bit eloquent as he offers all the kingdoms of the world. Among other things, Luke uses a different word for the world, suggesting perhaps the civilized world or the Roman Empire. That's probably consistent with Luke's perception of political realities or his use of the Greek language. And finally, Luke actually neglects to tell us about the ministering angels. He says simply that the devil departed until an opportune time. He leaves us in suspense on that count. Ron, I imagine this will bother some listeners. So they'd say, hey, why didn't they tell the same story? Who's got the right version? What really happened here? I can see how some would find that unsettling. I don't think ancient authors or readers would. Exactly. Just as we pointed out in the series on Genesis 1-3, to when we ask questions like that, we're pressing a modern concern. Matthew and Luke and Mark and John, Mm -hmm. would all consider the narrative sequence something they could adjust to tell a more coherent story, both rhetorically and theologically, a story that best addresses the specific concerns they had. This is by no means a way of challenging the reliability of the Gospels. (music) 
believe it or not, we have merely scratched the surface. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. There is a lot going on in this story. And so far, we've just walked through the context and the basic narrative. I think you planned it this way, John. I gave you grief for five episodes on three chapters of the Bible. You lead me off in a direction where we can get an easy two episodes, maybe three, out of a few short verses in the gospel. (laughs) I notice you're leaving open the option for even more episodes out of this. Yeah. In any case, now that we have the basic narrative of this story in mind, we want to come back and burrow into some of the details. There are probably aspects of this that our listeners may have missed. Our listeners may consider it a mercy, but that's where we have to wrap it up for now. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening. Thank you.